Hello and welcome back to episode 23 of the Brew and Bite Show. First up, we'll say hello to Tina. How are you today? Melting. I'm melting. I'm not used to this whole heat thing. I can't cope. I'm British. I need rain. <laughs> and we'll also say hello to Martin. How are you today? Uh, hello. Hi, folks. Uh, yeah, good, good, good. Uh, yes, Tina, it is pretty hot. Awesome. And tonight we're very, very lucky to be joined by a very special guest. And I'm sure you'll recognize some of the apps that he's developed. We'll say hello to Simon. How are you? Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, I'm good. It's it's hot in Denmark as well. So I'm also at the melting point, um, trying to cool myself down with all sorts of things. But yeah, it's it's getting way too hot for me here. Would you recommend a local beer? That's going to be my first question. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of good beers in Denmark. I don't know if there's any in particular. I have some breweries that I that I'm very fond of, but um, yeah, I'm also I'm also brewing my own beer, so I guess I should recommend that. But it's it's not that good yet, to be honest. <laughs> you definitely got the right the right podcast, brew and buy it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and um, and thanks for having me. Thank you. If you wouldn't mind, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about you and what you do as a day job? Yeah. So I'm um, I'm Simon, and I've been I've been doing development for iOS for. I think over 10 years now. I've been doing my own side projects that, that we might get back to, uh, or that I think we'll get back to later. But uh, but my day job is um, it's actually, it sounds kind of boring because it's at a bank. Uh, I recently switched a job to uh, one of these uh, challenger banks called um, Luna. So it's it's a bank that's like five years old or so, but it's it's mobile first. So we are putting a lot of energy into our mobile app, both uh, iOS, and iPad, and, and Android. So that that's kind of my day job, being a, being a developer at a bank. It's uh, quite new for me. I've only been it for a couple of months. Awesome. Well, we wish you luck. I'm sure it'll be fine with all your experience, without doubt. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> um, could I ask how you first got involved with developing apps? What was it that inspired you to choose becoming a developer? Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, I was a developer long before I, I started developing apps. So the one to take you through my whole life story, but basically my, my dad has been into computers ever since there was anything called a computer, basically. So I was kind of born into the whole uh, whole IT world. Um, and he taught me some some basic development when I was a kid. I was doing web development for, uh, for several years before I started developing mobile apps. I think like 10, 11 years ago, I got my first MacBook. And uh, a couple of months after that, I got my first uh, iphone it was the iphone 3gs so i guess that's around 10 years or so now maybe 11 yeah and when i got it in my hands i just knew that i wanted to develop something for this uh, for this iphone uh, that the, the touch screen was so intriguing i wanted to put something on on that screen that i could touch uh, something i had developed for myself just a few months before i got my um, my first iphone i i attended this music festival it's a small music festival in in denmark and i noticed that they didn't have an app they were using this old paper program or schedule over the festival so you could see who was playing and where they were playing when they were playing and so on and i thought it would be uh, kind of natural to turn that into an app so I'd just have it on my iphone so i started developing this for the music festival that showed the whole schedule for the festival and when i and when i felt like i was done i just sent a mail to the festival saying hey i just developed this do i want to do something do i want to can we publish it somehow uh, i mean i was kind of leaning on their brand using all that data so I, I couldn't just publish it without their permission. And luckily, they, they just contacted me. were like, we were just thinking about developing an app. Uh, can we team up? And that's kind of how it started. Then then I've been developing apps ever since that, I guess. Oh, wow. That's a great story. I'm going to ask, in terms of development, how would you say the changes, so a major update to iOS impacts the developer's workflow? I mean, it's, it's a good question. I think like when the when the major update to iOS hits, it's, it's always in June. 
June, right? It's at Apple's developer conference, uh, WWDC, and it's every year it's in June. So developers know that it's coming, at least developers who've been doing it for, for a couple of years know that they have to prepare for this and that, that big changes are coming. I mean, most people are prepared for their workflow to change it to some degree, at least. And the way that I, I prepare is usually during May, I will I'll make sure to wrap up some things uh, just so I have a clean slate in June. I'm kind of ready to just let all the new stuff sink in. And then from there, I'll, I'll reprioritize my backlog of things that I want to do. So it, it does affect my workflow. I mean, it, it might affect which apps that I want to to focus on for the rest of the year. And actually this year, it... it um, uh, the introduction of shortcuts on Mac meant that I that I wanted to shift my focus for for the summer to one of my apps that I think will be will be great to have uh, on the Mac now. So when you develop an app, do you just develop your own app, or do companies? I'm like you've worked for this festival. Do other festivals, for instance, come to you and say that we're going to do a festival? Would you do an app for us, or do you just do your own app? Back when I was studying, I would uh, I would take in freelance uh, tasks, for example, from other festivals. Actually, I wasn't in contact with other festivals to do their app, but also other other things. I mean, I made a small app for a restaurant back then when I was studying, and these days it's it's mostly my own project. And then, of course, my my day to day job where I'm also also developing apps. But now and then, you'll I'll get contacted by someone, and and I guess many people who develop apps will be contacted by someone who has a great idea for an app that they that they want your help with. And um, I mean, usually these people are think that it just takes you know a couple of days, and then they have an app. But it's usually requires much more work than that. You mentioned shortcuts there and WWDC kind of timeframes. Is there anything from iOS 15 that you was really excited about and that you would like to develop into something or to add into your app to some degree i think this year was a bit there wasn't that much on on ios that kind of piqued my interest but there were a few uh, few key things and i think like the the major changes for for developers this year will be the the safari web extensions that are coming to ios now we've had them on on the on the mac for for a few years and last year the api was updated to be this standardized uh, api that also works across other other popular browsers and this year apple brought it to uh, to ios so basically safari extensions that run on the mac can also run on the iphone with some some changes but not you don't have to rewrite the whole thing and i think that's exciting both because it's the first time we have safari extensions or at, at least we have a lot of new opportunities on on safari on ios now yeah and i, I think um so the safari extensions i, I think those are those are really uh, really interesting on ios and the, the other thing that's that's going to be like um, a major thing or might be a major thing this year is the is the facetime apps um so you know you can share your screen or a facetime call a classic example i think is the drawing app so so if we were on a FaceTime call now, we could kind of make our make a drawing on our phones, and then we could kind of um, yeah, you know, all participate creating something in in an app on our own devices, but through FaceTime. So FaceTime all of a sudden has this new API where we can kind of send data over a FaceTime call, or yeah, and kind of update the the state of an app. Uh, using that i think that's going to be interesting i mean either this is going to take off and going to be huge or it's going to be the new imessage apps uh, it's always uh always difficult to judge until we've had it in a while for for a few months but i guess for for me the biggest thing this year is is actually what's happening on the mac shortcuts on the mac have me have me really excited and i know craig you're also passionate about shortcuts so also something you're excited about the other guys can be witness to this too is that i've been holding out buying an M product for ages and then the developer preview dropped and there were so many things that the intel machines didn't do that was it it was kind of 
that there's a Mac M series coming somewhere to this household <laughs> in whichever form. On, on that topic, we'll move nicely on to the news. There was one exciting thing that Apple released this week, which was, can I describe it as the backpack? So Apple introduced the MagSafe battery pack. I don't know, did any of you take a look at this or have any thoughts? I, I did have a look at it. It seemed it's, it seems similar to their, do you remember the uh, the pregnant looking one they had before? For I had one for my iPhone 10 and it looked like it was uh, pregnant or it had a, an, an alien inside it. But the new ones, yeah, they, they slap onto the pack in the same way. My, co- my sort of thoughts is, is it needed? I get a whole day's use out of my my iPhone 12, pretty much using it, you know, all the different things I do during the day. And I just plug it in, stand it into the charger at the end of the day. So do I need that additional power? I'm not sure. The, the, obviously, it gets charged up when I'm in the car, when I'm using it for my the maps and my driving instruction. So I'm, I'm debatable whether to get it. But the price point, was it $99 or £99? It almost justifies itself, I think. The time that you're going to get really caught out and it's not there to, to give you that extra oomph. Um, I think it, uh, yeah, it's they've pitched the price point at a, a fairly good point to uh, entice most people to, to look at it. My phone lasts all day. So the only time I'm going to want a battery pack, um, and I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I'll be camping at Glastonbury in August. I'm just going to buy a cheap, cheap battery pack that I plug in overnight because actually it lasts all day i'll go to sleep i'll get one of those cheap power bank things i don't need something that's going to be charging it as i use it so yeah you know 99 pounds is not a huge amount if you're standing there tina with your phone above your head filming every bit of music that you see and hear you're you're going to need all that battery power i'm staying at worthy farm i'm not going to glastonbury because they're not having a festival this year. So we're doing a family camping trip. There are people that presumably they use their, use their phones a lot. It's neat. It's discreet. You can be using it while it's charging. So I can see there's a market. I'm just not it. I suppose if you're going to use that, is it going to be on the phone all the time? And therefore, does it make the phone more cumbersome and more awkward to use? The plug-in additional battery packs are great if you've got if you've got the time and you've got a place to do that. In my case, if I bought it, it would be on the back of the, the phone and it would stay there. I wouldn't want to be taking it on and off. So does it make the phone unwieldy then? It's already, I've got an iPhone 12 Plus, which is quite a large piece of kit. Trying to shove that into the back pocket with the... Uh, the pregnant bump on the back might be a bit beyond even my cargo pants. It's interesting you mentioned that it's the iPhone Max that you have there because one note that I read is that this battery cannot actually fully recharge the phone from zero. It will only do up to about 60 or 70%. And I think that was some of the criticism it got online. I know people have not got these physically in their hands yet, but the milliamp was so low in comparison to some of the others. I don't know if anyone had any opinions of that. I was trying to delve into some more info. That's the point of use then. Is it going to be something that you have separately charging up and if your phone starts to run down, you slap it on the back to give yourself the extra time? Or is it on the back of the phone all the time? The two of them are fully charged up as you charge whenever your cycle is. So therefore, does it drain from the backpack first before using the phone's battery power or vice versa? I think the last ones they had were quite intelligent in that they would drain first, saving the battery power until the backpack had run out and then it switched to battery. So you could discard it at that point, take it off and for the rest of the day just use your phone. But I suppose it depends on usage. And I I think I'm a fairly high usage of the phone. The one thing that intrigued me is, did anybody realise that it's actually the first Apple MagSafe product other than the MagSafe charger? 
and that it's the only thing that can actually charge the iPhone wirelessly at 15 watts. So it actually has a faster recharge rate than any of the other third parties. And that's purely down to the design of MagSafe. Uh, no, it's a simple answer. No, I didn't know that. That's, that's, that's interesting. Will it also charge things like? Can you charge your uh, your AirPods from it, for example? Could you could it act as a as a charging point for your AirPods or anything else? The actual MagSafe can charge the AirPod Pro charger. Didn't they say it's reversible as well? The phone can actually charge the MagSafe, can't it? It can. It is. If you've if you've physically got got the the phone plugged in through a lightning cable, can it then? It can then reverse charge and actually charge up the bank as well. For example, if uh, I've got a little holder in, uh, what do you call it, a little uh, holder in the car, so I can use it as my my uh, map guidance, and that I can plug into the USB in the car. So at that point, both would be charging, I presume. I'm also very intrigued by this uh, by this product uh, to the point that I'll probably order one within within too long. And I think the what it really comes down to is that I, I'm a I'm an iPhone Mini or iPhone 12 Mini user. My phone doesn't always last a, a whole day, and I think I read some. Somewhere, and I don't know if it's true, but I read somewhere that it can actually uh, charge the iPhone 12 mini to about 100%. So that would give me one extra full charge, uh, which I find quite intriguing for those days where I'm just out and taking a lot of photos or you know, watching a video on my phone or whatever. Because there are days where I can't get, can't get by with the, with like the regular battery on the phone and I'll have to find somewhere to charge it. And I think this is, this, this is quite intriguing for, for someone with the iPhone 12 mini who don't want to carry around there you know, a regular battery pack and a cable. And the, the dream would be that you can just snap it on, snap this onto your um, your iPhone and put it in your pocket and it'll stay there. I think the convenience is really, uh, is really intriguing. No, the one thing that I saw people moaning about was, oh no, it's not a case. But to be fair, I'm pleased that it's not a case because at the end of the day, you don't want to end up spending a hundred pound on a case. And then you go and upgrade your phone in the next few months and then it doesn't fit the case. I think this is kind of future proofing where the the battery power technology comes in is that it will be able to snap onto the back of any hopefully going forward iPhone design that they come up with. And let's be honest, at some stage, if you want a case that can accommodate the battery pack, someone will make it. And and that's assuming that the battery life is such that it lasts that long. You know, how many cycles has it got? That's the beauty of MagSafe, right? I, I wouldn't want a battery case. I think the beauty here is that you can swap it out for the, the leather wallet or uh, you can mount it in your car on a Belkin stain and so I mean that to me that's the that's the beauty of this product and, and MagSafe in general. Uh, it's like Lego for iPhones. You can just swap out the components. Who whoever thought we'd say that about uh, Apple that they become a Lego yeah, but then you brought a, a day into the show, right? <laughs> One other interesting bit of news, which I'm sure Tina will be very excited about, is did you know you can run Windows on an iPad? Shock horror. Do you know, it, it, it's interesting because there's the thing where you can run 3.1, Windows 3.1. And actually, to be fair, I've remembered one thing that I'd like. There was a screensaver that used to make me laugh a lot with 3.1, which is a bloke on a desert island. And it had lots of different stories and you'd watch it and the stories would change. So that made me laugh. But that's the only reason. But I've also read this thing about Windows 365 and there's lots of chatter about that. Lots of people going, well, it's not, it's not that exciting. You're actually having a doing it all in, in a web page and there are other solutions that do the same thing microsoft have been a bit cheeky saying it really going to be new 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 it might be slicker i think the microsoft 365 is going to be good for people that want someone to hold their hand you know you pay for the service you set it up away you go i probably won't do it i might you never know it's all about cost, isn't it? If it's £4 a month, say, or £5 a month, that might be worth having a cheap virtual machine. 
And I'd be interested to know how fast it is and what sort of internet connection you need. I think therein lies the problem for, for, for Microsoft, Tina, that uh, you're still running software that's 20 years old. You're not upgrading every year that they need. You know, you're you're not helping them to survive it as, as the multi-million dollar billion company they used to be. If you're not upgrading every year, shame on you, honestly. What, what kind of PC user are you, honestly? I'm shocked. So I don't understand why it's cheaper for me to buy a yearly subscription from Amazon than Microsoft. It's interesting that you said the price point there. I think that's the thing that they need to get right. If they got it right from the beginning, there is probably some legway with this because I've used virtual access machines before and they sit in the realms of around 25 30 pounds a month to have a mac mini somewhere based across overseas that you can remote dial into they're not cheap so i think if they could get it right with price i think they do stand a chance i don't know what's the developer's opinion of this i'm intrigued by this been years since i've been running a been running windows and i don't think that will change just because i could do it through my ipad to be honest i mean i, w- I would probably try it out but um yeah i don't really know what does windows do these days that i that i need that i can't do on my mac um it's quite strange one of the things i heard is that uh, the best machine still to run P- uh, windows on is a is a mac they're having real problems with the uh the current version of Windows 11 now uh, will actually run on a Mac and not on even some of the most recent uh, PCs. I mean, as long as you're not running a, one of the M1 Macs, right? I don't think you, you can run on Windows on those yet, right? You can run Windows 10 bag and you've got to do various things. But I think if you're in the parallels, you've got a beta that you can you can run Windows 10. Okay. VMware have, have been up front and they've said that although they're going to try and get Windows 10 working, that's as far back as they're prepared to go. They're not going to go back to the older architecture. So if you, I mean, I have run Windows 7 for many years in a virtual machine and I've sort of accepted that that's gone. And so I'm winning myself off, really. Yeah, I think Windows days are actually numbered on Mac. I don't see how they're going to go forward with that unless they come up with some completely different way of running a virtual machine purely for Mac Silicon. Is it worth their investment? I don't know. Yeah, I guess there was some version of Windows running on on ARM at one point, wasn't there? But I I guess it got abandoned at some point. I haven't seen or haven't heard anything about it lately, but um, that would be an option. And I guess that would bring back Boot Camp on the Mac. They're never, ever going to tell us this, but I'd like to know what percentage of Mac users actually have boot camp running. How many people use it on a day to day basis? I imagine it's more companies. Uh, I can think of a hotel chain that just buys Macs to put in their reception and then they just put Windows straight on them and they use them more of a decorative thing as when you come into the reception area. That's a lot of money to pay just to show an Apple Apple logo in a reception. (laughs) I mean, I guess also with with Microsoft's own products getting better on the mac um the the office suit and so um i don't know last time i, I used it, it it felt pretty good uh but maybe i'm off uh, craig you look like one who doesn't agree i wouldn't necessarily say they're reliable on mac just say i i bought a windows machine purely for the fact at the time it was the only one that you could run photoshop and illustrator on a touch screen and it lasted 14 days it's the only time i've ever took something back that was rather expensive like that it went straight back into the, the 
the Samsung store saying, this thing is horrible. I'm never buying it ever again. <laughs> and it, I think at that point, it was the only Samsung product or Samsung tablet that run Windows Professional 10, I think. It ran the full version of it. But you, it literally took 10 minutes to boot into Photoshop. It was horrendous. Goodness knows why they even advertised it could. Yeah, I don't know. I just I just know from colleagues who've been, uh, who've been using Windows for a long time and um, recently moved to, to Mac because that's kind of that's that's the device they get from from the company right that's a macbook uh, and they're using outlook on the mac saying it just works way better than any other any other mail client they could find um and that's that's kind of what's been holding them back going to the mac earlier has been the lag of of a good mail client and then they found that the new i guess outlook was updated recently i think i read that somewhere that the new outlook is quite good on the mac i guess that's where my impression of microsoft's own software getting better is coming from but i don't know if that's like a general thing for their office suit no alistair he's not sadly not here with us today but he said the same thing i think it was it last week we spoke he said that the new version of outlook for mac is far more secure than any of the other mail clients for gmail it's known for being one of the best apps for security which is an interesting one considering it's microsoft on a mac As we're very lucky to be joined by Simon, I wonder if he would be happy to tell us a little bit more about some of the apps that he's developed. And I'm really pleased to see that for the UK App Store, that you're actually in the top 10. You're actually sitting as number two as being the top development app, which is also a really good sign. Yeah. So first of all, shall we have a chat about Scriptable? If you want to tell our listeners what Scriptable is and where and when they would use it. Sure, yeah. So Scriptable was probably one of the first apps I did when I kind of decided to to start some indie development um, next to my day job. And the idea kind of came from from using Workflow. I mean, that was back when it was called Workflow. Today, it's Shortcuts. Um, as, you, as you know, Shortcuts uses this lock-based programming for building your shortcuts. And as a developer, I found that really interesting. Uh, and as a user, I benefited great from from shortcuts and uh, all of the new things that you could all of a sudden do with your with your phone when um, when it was released and again that was back when it was called workflow but as a developer i also kind of struggled with this block-based programming a bit didn't come as intuitively to me as you know traditional programming where you just write a bunch of text and then run it some some things would just be easier for me if i could just type it out instead of dragging these blocks around so i started kind of building toying around with the idea of building something a little like workflow but not as powerful but which would still allow me to to write a few small scripts that that could do things that i could also do with shortcuts but it was just easier for me to do them in a script and that's kind of how it how it came together just build the small um, javascript editor to to write javascript uh, scripts and in that had apis to integrate with with apple's apis so you know you could write a javascript that integrated with the reminders or with your calendar and so on, and it, it could present small UIs. Then I just started writing my own scripts on that instead of building shortcuts. And this was before shortcuts was launched. What was that? A few years ago. So this was in the spring. And then which, when shortcuts got announced at DubDub back in was 2018, 2017, and they announced this this API to integrate with shortcuts and build your own shortcuts actions, it kind of became clear to me that this is not this shouldn't be a competitor to shortcuts. That's not what I want to build. I want to stand on the shoulder of shortcuts and um, these two apps should work well together so i kind of i pivoted my idea a bit to make it a, a shortcut utility where you could kind of jump 
between writing JavaScript and building these block-based shortcuts. So running JavaScript just became a block in uh, in shortcuts, right? So that, that kind of changed my, my direction a bit. Would you say Scriptable is for a particular type person? Yeah, so I think um, that... The way that I started it was because I, I as a developer wanted something that was a bit more developer focused than shortcuts and had this traditional, that used these traditional programming languages. So I think it's the, the, the target audience is definitely people who know at least a little programming. The learning curve is steeper than it is with, for example, shortcuts. So the audience would be, would be developers, I guess. At some point, it could be interesting to, you know, broaden it out and have a, a less steep learning curve and, and grow the target audience. But for now, it's, it's more narrowly focused. That leads me on to, in terms of having a user community, what's been the most interesting thing you've found that someone uses your app for? I mean, it's, it's always difficult to, to to point out specific examples. I think the most, in general, it's just really amazing to see that I spent some time building some APIs that people then build on top of. And I might have some idea of what these APIs can be used for. I mean, I haven't come up with the ideas uh, or with the APIs in the beginning. These are just kind of JavaScript hooks into Apple's APIs. And then I, I provide those through a JavaScript interface and, and through my app. But then put these new APIs into the public now and then and just see what people are building. People are coming up with things that I couldn't even imagine you building with my app. And that's always uh, extremely interesting. I remember I saw some someone um, a few months ago who made this script, Inscriptable, where when you run it, it would ask you, to select a screenshot from your photo library. And that screenshot is supposed to be a screenshot of your home screen. So like an empty home screen, you know, when you long press on your home screen, it goes into jiggle mode. You then slide to the last page and there you basically have an empty home screen. You take a screenshot of that, you feed it into his script, and then it could cut out parts of the image that where there would normally be a widget. So for example, you could select that it should cut out the medium-sized widget. And then, you know, you would have a rectangle where the widget would be. And you could use this to create these fake um, transparent widgets. So you would uh, feed it into, it could be scriptable if you build a, a widget with scriptable, or it could be um, widget smith, where you can also provide your own your own images as a background, and then you kind of build transparent widgets. I had I had never um, hadn't thought that would be possible with Scriptable. So just seeing that someone built that was was amazing. But I mean, there are lots of these cases where people have built things that are just quite impressive. That's really cool because what I personally liked about using the different apps that you develop is the fact that yes, you've developed an app, but it then creates this whole community or like creativity behind it that other people can add to it or put their own personal touches to it there's certain things that i've done i have a script that goes away and finds tv programs out of a tv guide and then brings back the info to tell me when they're on but there's so many different things that you can do with it like you i know you touched on the lego comment earlier that is literally the fact behind some of this that it's just great that it's not narrowly doing one particular task it's completely open in that regard yeah that's the the main reason i find so much joy in working on scriptable is uh, in some sense when i when i build scriptable i'm i'm kind of i'm building nothing when when my app gets on the app store it does nothing basically it's it's kind of just a text editor and then it's up to the user to make it do something and then it's just fun to see what what people come up with that it's like i mean that's just 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 so a great joy in building these uh these tools for creative people it's it's a whole other thing than building you know a, a specific tool a calculator you know if i released a calculator on the on the app store i knew exactly what people would do with it more or less not to take anywhere anything away from people who build great calculators but i mean it's it's just two different kinds of of apps right 
right? One is more utility and the other is kind of blank slate for creative people. And that's just it's a lot of fun in, in building those kind of apps. Would you say there's one particular thing that Scriptable does that's completely different to shortcuts? It's two different ways of approaching the, the same problem, right? Letting users build something that they can then run that solves a task. I mean, the ultimate goal of the of the two apps seems to be kind of the same, but the interfaces are completely different. And then, I mean, of course, there are the feature set, the, the APIs, if you would, if you will. Uh, the features, the APIs in Scriptable differ from the building blocks in, in Shortcuts, but I mean, there's also a great overlap. Scriptable has an API for working with Reminders. Shortcuts has building blocks for working with Reminders. Shortcuts has been on the market for for, for more years. It's way further with their the frameworks, the, the APIs that they support than I am. But I've also seen, you know, traction in some other areas. So one feature that sets Scriptable apart from, from Shortcuts, at least for now, is that you can use it to build your own widgets. That's something that came last autumn uh, with, with the release of iOS 14. And I mean, yeah, that, that's one of the, the major things that sets the two apart right now, at least if I look at how people use it. I mean, the last year or so, people have mostly been using Scriptable to write widgets, um, which I mean, that's that's fine. That's the new hot thing. Um, and that's something that they can't do with, with shortcuts. I was reading up on that. And now I'm intrigued to go and try it myself. I've not done that yet. I think they're far more useful on an iPad rather than they are on a phone. I, I need to delve more into this one, to be honest. And they're just they're, they're a bit more fun on the iPad, I would say, because you can place them in more ways. At least it feels like that. So you can kind of you have a, a greater sense of personalization on your iPad all of a sudden. So you just throw in a widget here and there, and then it's more like yours. It's no longer just a grid of uh, app icons. You can kind of mix it up a bit. And, and I like that. You'll see people who have built um, all sorts of really, really cool home screens, especially if you start combining it with, you know, putting shortcuts on your home screen. People are almost making it look like a Mac with uh, a folder that links directly into files and so on. Um, Martin, do you have any widgets that you use a lot or are you a fan of widgets? Uh, I've started to become, yes. Again, it's separating out the various elements of what I do in my life. So I have work, I have Elmug, as you know, we have the photo show, we have personal stuff. So being able to, to pull together two or three of the apps I need for each of those individual requirements, which are quite different in some cases, Having that laid out in a quick format in a widget uh, means I can go straight there, uh, open up the, the various apps that I need to do that particular task that I want to work on. That's becoming increasingly useful. It's a, it's a time saver. It's a frustration saver trying to think, um, I don't know how many apps I've got on my iPad and my iPhone, hundreds. So having to go through search to find the particular one you want or move them all around on the screen all the time. And then you buy something new or you get a new app and everything gets shuffled around again. Uh, so the widget is, is becoming a useful time saver in that I can personalize it to the particular task that I want to uh, to address. The reason that they've kind of developed this or pushed it further is that we're going to finally see an always-on iPhone screen. Do you reckon that's part of the, the reasoning behind it? Uh, that's an issue really to do with battery drain, isn't it? The, the batteries are getting better so that, yes, maybe we will be able to have a, an always-on. Whether I'd actually want it, I don't know. It's the fact that it turns off when I'm not using it which can be for periods of time, doesn't doesn't bother me. The, the same thing with the always-on watch. That That's not something I've really required. I've, I look at the watch, bring it up when I need, need to know what the time is or check something or, you know, um, do a Dick Tracy and answer a phone call. Um, so that's that's in that case. So, no, if it grossly affected um, the life we were just talking about, this, but, well, I suppose it could tie in with why they're trying to flog a battery pack now that uh, maybe the next iPhone 13 will have 
always on display. So again, and if you had if you had adaptable widgets that you could uh, program for maybe different times of the day or different, uh, if you could geofence it, let's say when it knows for me, when it knows I'm on site, then I need to see certain apps appear on the front of the home screen. When I'm at home, that would be a different set. When I'm in the office, that could be a different set. So if it could smart learn that and then bring up those those particular uh, widgets or applications that I need, uh, said either based on a geofencing or even on a time thing, it, when it knows I get home roughly in the evening, switch over to a more uh, personalised, relaxed set of widgets. I don't use widgets at all because I suppose I don't have a massive amount of apps that I use. So the ones that I use a lot, you know, when you do swipe back, so you've got your home screen and then you've got the ones to the left, that does for me because I've got the things there that I need all the time. Whereas the always on what on the watch was a big deal for me. I think that that's one of the joys, I think, of things like iPhones now, isn't it? Your iPhone is your iPhone. It's, it's not... You know, I'm, I know it comes with certain apps that I never use, stocks. You put the apps on it so that my phone is actually probably unique to me and your phone is unique to you. I, I can't see why I would always want it on, but then I don't carry it in my hand. I'm sure there are loads of people who carry it in their hand all the time. So they'll want all those on because they're always looking at it. And there might be certain apps. Maybe, you know, I can see a time when you would want it always on, but then I'd always want that as an option to go, yeah, switch off. And I could do that now, I know, because I could go into my settings and go, stay on regardless, but I'm too lazy. So maybe I do need widgets. Maybe I do need a shortcut. Using the OS, always on. I'm just trying to think about which widgets I use the most. It's probably travel-related ones to tell me what the departure times are of things and if there's traffic. The one I use the most is drafts or shortcuts and then the activity monitor because I like walking miles. But I'm going to explore more of these for sure. So Simon, uh, uh, what's JSON? I'm interested in that. Um, JSON is is browser for JSON documents. So it's it's getting a little confusing because we're saying JSON all the time. But there's JSON the app, uh, and then there's JSON the file format, JSON. In case people don't know, then JSON the, the file format is for exchanging data between two parties. Usually if you're using the web or if you're using your mobile phone, it will be exchanging J- JSON all the time, basically. Probably if you're reading Twitter, or I don't know in particular about Twitter, but your tweets could be coming in in JSON data and then displayed on in your app. Um, so I built this app. It's also called JSON, but spelled differently for browsing these these data, these data sets. JSON's not just an iOS app though, is it? There is actually a Mac version now as well. Yeah, there's also a, a Mac version that Sorry, a Mac version. Um, I don't speak about it too often because it's one of the very early Catalyst apps um, that I tried to get out with the with the launch and with all the um, building early Mac Catalyst apps was it was rough. Um, so I'm working on an improved version of the Mac app that'll hopefully be better. But yes, there's there's a Mac version. There's an iPad and iPhone version. So I mean, I'm intrigued about. Uh, obviously, I know nothing about being a developer and and, and creating uh, applications for the Mac. What is the process like of when you actually approach Apple and say, right, I've got this new app, uh, I'd like to get it on the store? How, is that is that a good process? Is it a convoluted process? Is it a pain in the backside process? It's convoluted when you when you get started. It's uploading your first app to the App Store isn't a, isn't a pleasant experience. At least it wasn't back when I when I did it ten years ago, and honestly, I don't think it has changed much. T- 
much um, since then. I, I mean, I guess it has, especially this year, where you can upload apps from your iPad, but no one has tried that yet. Supposedly, that's that's easier. But otherwise, you know, it's, it requires you to create a developer account. And back when I did that, you had to send Apple all sorts of, of documents. I had to send a fax, I remember, and I didn't have any way to send that. So I had to, to go to my dad's job and borrow a fax machine and then when, once you get your developer account there are all sorts of um, all sorts of things that you have to set up you know certificates that you have to upload and download all your profiles and so 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 you can kind of sign your piece of software so apple knows that it that is coming from a trustworthy uh, entity that's a process that was uh, very convoluted 10 years ago and it still is but it's also a process that apple is continuously trying to make uh, make more pleasant and i'm i'm curious to see how they how they will solve this when you upload apps from from your ipad um i mean it has to be easier otherwise people can't really do that but i mean once once you've done it once once you're set up uh, it's actually quite simple you Tell Xcode, which you use to to build your apps in, to make a make a build that's suitable for for distribution. Then you upload it to Apple. It's all signed at this point with these certificates and so on. Part of this can be automated these days. Part of it can't. And then then you upload it to to Apple and uh, upload your screenshots. You you type in your release notes and you send it in for approval. And uh, you just hope hope that it's going to get approved. In terms of the approval process, on average. How quickly is it from you uploading it to arriving in the stores? It differs a lot, I would say. It used to be like two weeks or so from you uploaded it till it, it was approved and on the store. Uh, but these days it can take anything from, I've tried minutes to days. So it's, it's, it's really different. I think a few years ago, Apple, uh, Apple promised that it would lower the maximum amount of time that it would take from upload till approval to just a few days i believe maybe it was a week but but these days it's it can be even better than that but now and then you'll also see your bill just getting stuck somewhere in the process not getting reviewed for yeah for several days uh, and i've seen developers not getting reviewed for several weeks but i think that's that happens rarely these days and um what these people often just do is you know take the build down re-upload it and then sometimes you'll see it i mean it's it's all just a black box for developers uh, the whole approval process unfortunately but is it really clear what you can and can't do because obviously it's in the news right now isn't it because we've got all the stuff with Fortnite. i'm presuming every developer that does an app has a clear idea of what's allowed and what isn't allowed i mean apple, apple has the review guidelines but it's kind of in the name these are these are guidelines these are not necessarily rules but you're not supposed to break these guidelines but there are there are gray areas where things aren't clear what you can and what you can't do especially in the, in the kind of the time that we're in now with apple launching new technologies we still have to see what can and can't be done so in the past we've seen examples of developers back when we saw the first iteration of widgets those that are now being replaced so the first set of widgets were the ones that were you know on your today view which was left of your home screen right we saw developers trying to do all sorts of interesting things out there and in the first weeks where when was the when was the widgets introduced was it ios 8 or something like that. Shortly after um, whatever iOS version introduced these widgets uh, was released and developers started uh, submitting apps with the, with widgets, we saw that the, um, the rules weren't really clear from the beginning or the guidelines weren't clear from, from the beginning because developers were getting rejected for doing things that wasn't really in the guidelines that you can't do, which is super unfortunate for developers who have spent uh, quite some time developing all of these new great uh, great features for Apple's platforms and really trying to push the envelope on, on the platforms, getting 
getting rejected for um, you know seemingly seemingly no reason sometimes i mean I'm, I'm sure there's a reason but again it's just a black box you never you never get the reason or you never get the real reason you rarely do in times like this it's it's really difficult to see when i was 15 is out what can and can't we do with the new apis like how far can we take the the facetime uh, facetime integration how far can we take the safari extensions usually developers only become aware of this when when you hear someone got rejected for doing something so i guess the short answer is no it's not it's not that clear what you can and can't do sometimes you just have to know or sometimes you just have to try and see i presume there's uh, is there some kind of developer forum that you all uh, chat and talk together about these issues and help help each other out with development processes there are developer forums apple has the, the have their own developer forums but uh, and then there are, you know there are slack channels for developers but there's no no um no one forum or one slack channel where where all the the knowledge is shared. Honestly, I think if you're a if you're a new developer, kind of wanting to get a, a grasp of all of these things, then Twitter is really the best place to be. I, I think that's the closest we'll come to a, a developer forum where all of this knowledge is, is shared. You'll see developers trying trying to push the envelope and and possibly getting rejected, or as it also often happens, get approved uh, with their their great new ideas. I think as a as a, an iOS and Mac developer, that's that's kind of the place to be to to learn from others. It's interesting you say that. I'm going to bring that nicely into your other app, which I'm actually a huge fan of and spent many hours hanging out with DataJar. If you want to explain what DataJar is. Yeah, DataJar is uh, an app I developed. I started developing shortly after I released uh, JSON. DataJar is is a database that's meant to be used with the Apple Shortcuts app. That's that's basically it. So you can store whatever data and um, you can store that data from your shortcuts and you can get it back from your shortcuts actions or from your shortcuts using DataJar's shortcuts actions. Yeah, and as I mentioned, it kind of came from developing JSON because when I released JSON, I heard from a lot of people in the shortcuts community that they were kind of using it to browse their small databases that they had on disk. So they stored data from the shortcuts in the JSON file format and then all of the sudden they could use json to browse their files in like a graphical way in, in the app and i was like hold on you're using json for uh, your shortcuts database i think we can do better than that we should kind of have a utility that is your shortcuts database and then i started developing uh, developing data jar so it's a it's a kind of a the, the idea is simple if you're used to uh, using dictionaries in shortcuts then you'll instantly feel familiar in, in data jar because in the end it's kind of a, a big dictionary stored in data jar that you can then access in all of your shortcuts and then kind of what sets uh, data jar apart from just using a dictionary is one you can use it in all of your shortcuts but also all of data jars data now all of this the data that you store in data jar is synchronized between your uh, devices i don't know you've probably come across this and probably seen it as quite primitive on how i use it but there are a number of different ways that I use DataJar. One thing that I really like is that when you're using shortcuts and you're putting in certain bits of information like dates and times, they're very static. You can only use them in that one shortcut. DataJar allows you to use the similar or the same pieces of information in multiple different shortcuts. So one thing that I actually do is like when I send the show notes out to everyone, it's actually taking information that's stored within DataJar. So things like the date, the show number, and what it actually does is when you've run the shortcut, it's actually updating the information that's stored in data jar so the show number could be number 20 and then by the end of the shortcut it's then gone and contacted data jars directory and 
added one to it. So then it becomes episode 21. Yeah. It's just a very interactive way of dealing with different pieces of information. I've not explored the photography side of it yet because my background is as a photographer. And this is something that I'm intrigued in using a lot more of. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in your podcast scenario, your shortcut for managing the show notes, you're kind of using it as a way to store global variables. I don't know. Do you use this uh, episode number across multiple shortcuts then? Yes. Yeah. yeah so that then it works sort of a like a global variable so i think that's that's kind of one of the ways that people use data jar it's for global variables and i think one of the other ways that people use it is like for storing uh, historical data so i've seen people you know track the temperature or over time to maybe plot it in a in a chart using other apps or um, I recently saw an, an intro, saw someone on Twitter sharing one of their shortcuts or at least describing the, the shortcuts which was for tracking their migraines and then every time that they uh, they had a migraine they would um, store a timestamp in data jar and then they could later you know present this this data in a graphical way or in some somehow interpret it uh, and then every time they run the, the shortcut it would say like okay today you have had um one or two migraines or and this is your number of five migraine in july and so on so that's like for tracking data over time i just thought that was a, an interesting use case that i that i saw recently i'm just thinking of all the other ones that i use it for one example is that when we're doing things in terms of hyperlinks or hyperlinks back to a picture. So I'm a big fan of drafts and drafts doesn't work well with images. So it's always linking back to a, a live link somewhere on the internet or a database. So I actually store the URLs within DataJar and then that's kind of fed in using an Apple shortcut to bring that information into a template with all the different links. So like when I send a link out and it's a YouTube video or something that you can't physically open within a particular app. It's just a kind of workaround method as well. I, I think that's really useful in that sense. But then pull out the, the URLs from data jar and put it in a document or like what happens at that point? It does. So an action within drafts pulls out the information that's been fed in via data jar. So then it can be readable by something else. But that would be really good if you could integrate a way that you could share a data jar directory to another user. That would be a really fascinating information way of sharing in that sense yeah um that's something i looked into at one point and i, and I still have it somewhere on my to do to make like um, databases in data chat that you could share um, so you and i could have a shared database that we could both update and that we could both read from it is possible apple has these apis for building uh, kind of shared experiences using icloud um so all of data jars data all of your data that's stored in data jar is stored in, in, in iCloud, and that's how it's synchronized between devices. And Apple has a has APIs for synchronizing data between two devices that don't belong to the same user. Uh, so that's a shared database. And I could uh, integrate that with uh, with DataJar, and I hope to do it one day. Um, there haven't been that big of a demand for it yet, but maybe at some point. Is there something in particular that you personally wanted to add or what's next for one of your apps? Do you have a particular idea that you want to push forward? The big thing for my apps right now, or at least one of the apps, and that, that is DataJar, is uh, bringing it to the Mac. Once I saw that Shortcuts is coming to the Mac, uh, I knew that I had to, had to bring DataJar to the Mac. It, it, it makes great sense. And also, <laughs> I've kind of been, been promising it over the past year, uh, year or so, because people have occasionally asked me, why isn't DataJar on the Mac? Can we get DataJar on the Mac? And my excuse all the time has been, well, Shortcuts, 
Records isn't on the Mac, so I don't think it makes that much sense. It doesn't provide much value. I can, I mean, I can see that for some people it would be beneficial to have data jar on the Mac even without shortcuts. But I've always been saying like I can only really see the the value for that it provides enough value for for enough people to spend time on it once shortcuts is on the Mac, and it is now. So now's the time to bring data jar to the Mac. Um, so I've been building yet another Catalyst app. In that case, I'll be the first customer. I'll happily be downloading that and be using it straight away. Well, I'll let you know once the <laughs> once the beta is ready. It shouldn't be that that long. Please do. That would be awesome. <laughs> and I mean, besides that, um, I have I have plenty of ideas for the apps. I'm working on a on a version two of JSON that will hopefully be much better on on the Mac. But kind of working on that uh, while also working on, on updates for scriptable kind of brought me to starting a whole new project so i'm building a, a text editor i mean it sounds super boring but basically a, a text editor with syntax highlighting for different programming languages and the the motivation for this is that i need a better text editor for um, for scriptable so the editor that people are writing J, uh, javascript in i want that to be better and i want to own a bigger part of it so right now i'm using an open source component but i want to take control of that and deliver a better experience. And at the same time, I want to use that text editor in, in JSON for actually writing the text in the JSON file format. But you know, working on, on those two updates for JSON and Scriptable kind of spawned a whole new side project. But there's, there's a lot of things cooking these days. Martin, I shall hand over to you. It is the Did You Know section. And this week, for me, it wasn't so much a, a tip or trick. Uh, something I came across during my reading was uh, the fact that um, uh, Steve Jobs' uh, widow apparently is now the richest female in tech. Uh, she's worth approximately 19 to $20 billion now. And she far outpasses uh, almost any other uh, lady in, in the tech industry. And she's, she's quite high, high up the actual overall list, if you look at uh, some of the some of the boys in, in the game. But she also now runs a, a charitable foundation, which she pours quite a lot of money into. Though surprisingly, she's not known as one of the best philanthropists. Still has a, a huge number of Apple shares, and is still one of the biggest uh, individual shareholders in disney very interesting young lady for me my one's a little bit of a random one and kind of a reminder is that when you're in control center and you've got wi-fi bluetooth airdrop do not disturb you can actually pick and choose which ones of those you want to display and you can go into system preferences and actually untick which ones you want to show up in that toolbar or if you do actually hover over some of them a little right arrow then appears that you can click on that actually gives you lots more different preferences especially ones like bluetooth and it will list all of the bluetooth devices much quicker than going in and out of system preferences in the past but there are actually lots of changes with this with monterey monterey has some quite quirky things you can play with this you can actually customize the layout completely but that's yet to come <laughs> and what is Simon's choice? I'm intrigued. I have something. It's not really a, a feature in iOS or macOS. It's it's an app. I hope it's okay to bring an app uh, as a tip. Uh, yesterday, I was writing out on Twitter because I was uh, I was frustrated that uh, that a feature that I wanted that, that Spotify didn't have a particular feature that I that I wanted. And that's like for the way that I listen to music is often by, you know, making a playlist with artists that I want to listen to. So it can be one, two or three artists. And then I just put them in a playlist and then I shuffle it. 
And that's tedious. So that's how I want to listen to music. Often I just want to listen to a mix of artists. And then I either have to create these playlists. I just have to uh, find a single playlist with that artist uh, that I can listen to. If you if you use Spotify, then you'll know that they have these, uh, like this is Billie Eilish or whatever playlists that are really good if you just want to listen to a particular artist. That's, that's what I often end up doing, but that's not what I want to do. I want to mix multiple artists. So I wrote out on Twitter that I kind of liked this feature. And then, you know, some people uh, agreed with me. I even had I had friends writing to me, oh, I've also been wanting this for a long time. And then I was like, okay, maybe I can build it. Maybe it's possible to build this feature on top of um, Spotify's APIs. But then there was one one um, one person on Twitter that replied to me like, uh, hey, do you know the Spotify Stations app? Um, and I didn't. Uh, so I tried downloading the Spotify Stations app, and that's exactly what it does. Uh, it lets you create your own music stations by selecting, uh, I think you can select play- playlists, I'm not sure. What really matters to me is that I can select two, three, five artists, and then I can have a generator station based on that. And it's it's a bit different from the radios that you can create in Spotify, uh, in the main app, where you can kind of limit this to only playing those artists. So by default, it will also kind of feed your station with similar artists. So if I've selected Billie Eilish, it might it will suggest someone that's similar to Billie Eilish when I listen to that uh, that station. And that's not what I want, but I can toggle that feature off, and then it'll only play music from the artists that I've selected. You can also make it play um, other kinds of stations, like something based on your mood, or if you're if there's a particular century that I want to hear music from, or what do I know? Really amazing to me that this feature wasn't built into Spotify, this exact feature that I wanted. But apparently, two years ago, they launched an app that did it, that did exactly this. So maybe I'm late to the game, or maybe this is just a really uh, one of those lesser-known uh, apps. That's awesome, because one thing that frustrates me is, with, especially with Apple Music, it can pick some completely random tracks or artists to play what it thinks you like, which are completely off-topic. But having some control over that sounds good. Thank you for that, Simon. So uh, what I will like to say is that all our listeners out there, tell us what you know. If there's something that you'd like to throw into our Do You Know mix, uh, please send it in. Uh, we'll uh, be delighted to have a look at it here on the show and uh, pass it on to other listeners. Brilliant. Thank you, Martin. And I think, yet again, we've come to the end of our episode. And as always, we will say thank you to our guest, first and foremost. But we'd also like to know where can we find you hanging out on the internet if people want to find out more. That's the important one. First and foremost, thanks for having me. It's been a it's been a pleasure talking to you, um, talking with you. And I guess if you want to find out more uh, about me and the apps that I work on, the best place is on Twitter, where I'm at Simon BS. Um, and BS is, is is not for bullshit. People tend to think that it's not. <laughs> it's it's my surname. <laughs> awesome. That's great. And definitely check out all of Simon's apps on the App Store. They come highly recommended in downloading all of them and been using them for a long time. And to be fair, you are also one of the really good developers in that you listen to feedback and you do update your apps really quickly. So keep up the good work on that one. I think that's really nice to hear. And thank you. And we'll also say thank you to Tina this evening. Thank you very much. As usual, been great to um, listen to people and discover quite the depth of my ignorance. But hey, there's always got to be one person in the room that doesn't know what they're doing and it appears it's me. But I'm fine with that. I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. So, you know, have a great weekend. Whoever's listening, stay safe and all that stuff as uh, it does appear. 
that levels are going up. So let's all be careful out there. Sadly, yes, it is the case. Fingers crossed. Thank you, Tina. And we'll also say thank you to Martin. Uh, Thank you, Craig and Tina and Simon. Thank you to all our listeners for coming along and uh, enjoying our ramblings here for the last hour or so on the uh, Brew and Bite show. Um, I hope you all are staying safe and just still take a modicum of care about how you you carry on interacting with people for for the next few weeks until we hopefully get out of this horrible mess. Yeah definitely act of caution from me and common sense which is also really important and i'll also say thank you from me until next time we'll see you soon